the the air hot. He doesn't care. Well, this is a very, very high stage. It's mm-hmm. unlikely for people who are uh, understanding. Uh, let us say it this way. Those who are trying to understand terms like Arahat and whatnot will give themselves the label of Arahat, but there are two different definitions of of the word. So we were talking about, there we go, now we got it. Okay, so we can start. First off, we've been talking for a while, and we were talking about form and uh, uh, the various designations on the path. Uh, and that you, we had just run across the point about the soda pond is one who remembers often enough that he can basically then talk himself out of the mess that he just got himself into. Mm. That's the way that we look at it. That the soda pond is the one who can talk, who can remember to talk himself out of the mess. He just gotten himself into. Okay. And the mess then is feelings. The feelings of wanting, the feelings of uh, not liking. um, uh, And so also the mess can be uh, misstatements. And when we recognize that we've made a misstatement, then we can correct it immediately. That's what the soda pond uh, is all about, to be on alert enough so that they can catch themselves. Now, it said that uh, he may uh, wander off uh, into messing for about seven or eight, seven times at the most. That number seven seems to be a magical number that's used all over the place. The Buddha uses it, and so we can uh, use it there, too. Now, most people think that the soda pond has to do with seven lives or seven um, rebirths. Well, it is true that it is seven rebirths. The mess is, in fact, one rebirth after another rebirth after another rebirth of selfishness. And you Uh can see it, how people are arguing so that A will say blah, blah, and now B will come in with a selfish remark and he'll say blah, blah, blah. And then the next guy will say blah, blah, blah. And then this guy will come in a second time and say blah, blah, blah. After four or five or six times, this guy says enough of this. I'm out of here. Mm-hmm. Okay, he does not continuing the argument. The argument for, for ordinary people may last a days, months, years, or uh, a lifetime. <laughs> well, a whole lifetime, maybe, of just keep arguing. But uh, with the soda pond, we're waking up. We're intentionally watching what we're doing. So that means that um, that sati will come back soon enough. The question is, how soon does the sati come back? And that's the teaching then of the Buddha, of the Sotapan, the Sotagami, the Anagami, and the Arahat, is how fast is the sati? Mm. Okay, the sati for ordinary people is slow. Sometimes it takes years for them to wake up. 
The soda yeah. pond is as lickety split comparison to that. Lickety split is the soda pond. Why? Because he can only, you know, seven seven times, seven mind moments, or at most seven minutes later, and yeah. he's finished with this stuff, and he's back into feeling good again. Um, I think I had a, a 15 minute situation before I called you today, <laughs> before I got out of it. <laughs> Maybe 10. <laughs> okay, well, that's something that we can also um, uh, use as a reference guide of how if I do get unhappy and upset and uh, give my crap to other people, etc. How long am I stuck in that? Most people are stuck in it most of the time. Yeah. But with the soda pond, who's been able to get himself out of it so often, that means that now we're on much more alert so that we can get ourselves out of uh, bad mental states fairly quickly. Well, actually, I have been in that same uh, argument with myself. It wasn't with anyone else, but I've been in that same argument with myself before a number of times. And I think that's why I was able to kind of rather quickly just say, you know what? The only way to get through this one is is forget about it and let's go sit <laughs> and take some deep mm -hmm. breaths. And I got myself into a good state and then we were able to put that behind us and it was really nice. Great, that's wonderful. Okay, so let's go to the second one and that is the Sotagami. The Sotagami does not actually finish the fetter number four or five, but, this, but he does have the first three fetters the same way that the Sotapan does. Now, the first three fetters is actually the first fetter is understanding personality view. And that understanding of the personality means that we now begin to understand that our problems are caused by our selfishness. Mm -hmm. When we understand that our thoughts are caused or that our problems are caused by our selfishness, we now begin to get on guard for watching that selfishness. Yep. The next fetter, the fetter of Silabata Paramasa, or the fetter of causing of rites, rules, and rituals, we begin to see that most of the time we are selfish because we are taught to be selfish by the laws, rules, rituals, and the way that society operates. In other words, society teaches us to be selfish. And when we are uh, watching for that selfishness, we also watch out both for the internally created and the externally created selfishness. So mm -hmm. that would be the next one. Uh, the third yeah. one then is doubt. So is that, is that like uh, when we're not in seclusion? Is that what you're getting at? Right. So here's the way that we could look at it. For the practicing Dhamma practitioner, there are two states of being, the state of seclusion and the state of metta. Those are the only two states worth having. Uh, the state of seclusion, being away from it all, or when we're not away from it all, we deal with it all with metta. Okay. But okay. if we're going to... Uh, to deal with it with metta, that means that we have to have that metta created while we're in seclusion. So these are the two ways. We can either deal with the world by not dealing with the world, or we can deal with the world and with loving kindness. Those are the two ways to deal with the world. Knowing that it was the very world that has screwed me up and messed me up my whole life. <laughs> 
I'm Except thinking about that. Uh, I'm now thinking about, I have a choice. <laughs> yeah. I, I, <laughs> I'm just thinking about because you mentioned in another talk, you mentioned the hair buns and the kneecaps. <laughs> so I don't know. That's what I'm picking up right now. Okay. So the third fetter is the doubt that we carry around because we're not sure about our selfishness and we're not sure about the world. But once we understand the actual Eightfold Noble Path and its relationship to Anapanasati and how that works, and that we it does work, that's the whole point is the proof is in the putting. And that is the elimination of the doubt. And so basically it's then the eradication of doubt about what is and what is not the path. Now that important, that's really important. Not about what the path is, but what the path is not. And what is the not the path? Everything that we've been doing up until the time that we got the Eightfold Noble Path, that's not the path. <laughs> Everything that we've been doing that has kept suffering going is not the path, and everything that does eliminate and remove suffering is the path. So this is the state of the soda pond, and it has a lot of enthusiasm built into it, in the sense that, hot diggity dog, I am able to see selfishness. Hot diggity dog, I understand that that I have been attached to the society, that it's really not society's fault. It's the fact that I have become, through my instincts, attached to that society. It's called the socialization instinct, the nesting instinct, the herding instinct, and that's what is uh, the woeful state of being an animal that the Buddha talks about is, in fact, going along to get along, and we are going along with all those rules that society set up. Yep. So these are the three fetters. When we know for sure that the path works and that what is the path and what is not the path, and believe me, what is not the path is doing what you're told to do. That is not the path. That's hard to believe because here you come to the guru and the guru tells you what to do, but that's still not the path. The path has to be discovered within. One has to see it for themselves. We cannot take someone else's instructions for it. So once we get these three things, the uh, personality view, the selfishness causes the problem, that the the selfishness was caused by um, instinctual um, interrelations with the outside society and the eradication of the doubt about how to get out of that mess. That's when one becomes a soda pine, but we still have all the greed and all the ill will, just not so much delusion anymore. Mm. Yeah, that makes sense. So now the greed and the delusion has, uh, uh, excuse me, the greed and ill will have to be uh, monitored. And this is now the job of the soda pine to be on full alert as much as possible so that when we go off into ill will, we don't stay there very long. Mm -hmm. That we wake up to it. Yeah. That That we've been practicing waking up, so now we wake up. Now, here's the thing. When are we most likely to have ill will? Is when the outside world puts stress on us. Yeah. And we don't like it. Okay. 
-hmm. But what we need to do is uh, wiggle out from under it rather than complain about it. So going to seclusion? <laughs> right, to go back in seclusion. And when we hear this, uh, we say, well, maybe I don't have an opportunity to go back into seclusion. The answer is yes, you do. Because you don't have to get up and walk away in your with your body. You can get up and walk away with your mind instead. Yep. Okay. So uh, the the anagami or uh, the sotapan then is practicing to eliminate this greed and ill will. So that means that he eventually gets really sharp at being on his toes so that when he, uh, ill will does come, he does not spend seven hours or seven, well, not in seven hours, but let's just say seven minutes in ill will. That, they, uh, that he wakes up quicker and quicker to the mm. point that he only will say one outburst. Okay, one outburst will be all that's, that's there. An example of that, uh, recently taking the uh, AstraZeneca shot. I got shot Friday. Oh, yeah. Okay. And I was uh, just that one moment of there I am sitting <clears throat> while she's getting the needle ready. And I'm not even looking at what she's doing. I'm no longer interested in what she's doing. I give her my arm. Uh -huh. And then uh, uh, as the needle comes in, I can feel that. And I says, that's OK. And then it becomes very sharp. Mm. And that sharpness only lasted an instant in my mind because I said, that's OK. This is all right. There's no problem with it. But in fact, it does take quite a while. It takes five or six mind moments for that shot to be delivered, which all of that sharpness is there in the mind and unless you can put it out in the mind. OK, so that shot that I was giving, I only had um, not liking it for just one instant. OK, and then but I didn't give her any reaction. I didn't pull back. She didn't know that, in fact, that girl had probably given 100 shots already in the past hour or two. And she doesn't get a whole lot of people. Nobody reacts to it on the outside. But they react to it on the inside. Mm -hmm. OK, but we're talking about it at, uh, at the real level that. Um, that at this at the level of uh, uh, Sotagami. There can be an outburst. Uh -huh. OK. Uh, uh, an, an example of that, in fact, I think you were there the day that Kitty poured coffee on the hard drives. You were there. Yeah. You saw how I handled that, okay? That rather than getting angry or uptight or freaked out about it, I just turned the drives off, wiped them off, and then after the call, I told Kitty how to be careful with the coffee to not uh, hold coffee oh, uh, over the top of electronic equipment because it might spill. And she was good with that. And the point is, is that under ordinary circumstances, having coffee poured on uh, active operating hard drives is freak out time. Yeah. 
Okay, so how can you not freak out about that? The answer <laughs> is uh, in in this path to recognize that freaking out is not going to help. Yeah. And we have to recognize that very quickly. So uh, the Sotagami uh, the then is going to have one outburst. That outburst would be in that particular situation of, watch what you're doing. Why don't you want to? And then he remembers and stops right then. Okay. <laughs> that was all it took. And then he woke up. Yeah. Just one outburst. But with the Anagami, he doesn't have an outburst, but he does something about it. There's no outburst. It doesn't come up. It doesn't bubble up or it doesn't come out. This is what we would mean by that it's formless. Right. Which one is this again? This is the Anagami. And this is after Sotagami. This is after Sotagami. The Anagami yeah. is the one who has uh, basically taken care of ill will and he's taken care of greed, but he hasn't taken care of the deeper aspects of self in the sense of those are my hard drives. He still has those five fetters. And there's still an outburst at that stage, you said? Well, no, if the Anagami, he would act the way that I did. Okay. In the sense of no outburst, just take care of business. Got it. Okay. The Arahat, he's going to let her pour coffee on the hard drives because you don't give a flip about hard drives. He's good with or without hard drives. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. Cool. <laughs> that the issue is, is that the uh, this, the the Arahat, he doesn't care. Well, this is a very very high stage. It's mm -hmm. unlikely for people who are uh, understanding. Uh, let us say it this way: those who are trying to understand terms like Arahat and whatnot will give themselves the label of Arahat, but there are two different definitions of er of the word. Okay. The original definition of the word Arahat means one who is worthy of respect and worthy of gifts. Mm. Now that's a very specific definition, but it's really, really general in, in its context. Yeah. So when someone is an Arahat, that means merely that they're worthy of respect and they're worthy of gifts. That's all I, I can, mean. That's that's not particularly uh, high up there. That's not particularly high up there. Exactly right. I'm pretty worthy of gifts and respect. <laughs> Call me an Arahat. <laughs> In that regard, then you can. Uh, let us say you could technically, without guilt, use the term Arahat. And there are guys who use that term for themselves. Yeah. And I give it to them because I understand that that word has that particular usage to it. I'm going to change my name on Facebook now. I'm going to go by Arahat Keyshawn. <laughs> <laughs> Approved by Don Rado. <laughs> 
Well, there's another definition of the word arahat. It's a little bit more sticky, and this is the, the definition that the Buddha would use. And that is the one who is completely free of even the formless fetters. Okay. Let us talk about the fetters now are of, of two different groups. There are form and formless fetters and the anagami, because he does not expose anything. He doesn't let it out, but it still is a formation in his mind. This is the problem with using the word form that we were talking about before. Okay, that that actually kaya means actually physical, like the body. Okay, the body is called kaya, like dhamma uh, dhamma kaya, the study of the body, uh, or uh, kaya nupasana, uh, uh, vipassana of the body. Okay, the physical body that's got meat and bones and hair and all that kind of stuff. But that's different than a rupa. A rupa is actually a representation of the form. This is why we would call a statue a Buddha rupa. It's not a real Buddha. It's not a Buddha kaya. It's not the body of, the, of a Buddha. It's a representation of a Buddha. It's a formation of a Buddha. This is, and in the Pali, it's a uh, uh, rupa. And so the distinction then between the anagami and the arahat is, is that the anagami still has the formations inside of his mind, but that he doesn't let it out. To where the anagami, uh, the, uh, the sotagami has those formations in his mind, but he'll only let it out in one outburst, and then he's finished. The Sotapan also has those formations in his mind, but he'll only let it go for a little while, up to about seven times, and then he's finished with it. The ordinary person has these formations in, in his mind, and he just, there's no end to it. <laughs> yeah. It just keeps going on and on and on. But up at the level of the Arahat, he doesn't actually make the formations in the mind. Because all of the things that are there to make those formations now have been suicided. So it's basically coming down level after level after level, which means levels of agitation. The, the place where people start is at a highly level, agitated level. And then we go into first jhana and we learn to, to bring that agitation down to a place that we would call peacefulness compared to that level before. And then we can come down to the next level and we can call the first jhana then agitation compared to what we've got now. Okay, so the jhanas are actually in the same way of the full development. So you could say that the jhanas are the instantaneous forerunners of the actual long-term result then would be Sotapan, Sotagami, Aragami, and Arahat. So let's look at what those formless states or those form states are that are eliminated in the, in the uh, Arahat so that those things don't get formed. There's five of them. Okay. And that they seem to be going in order so that the one that seems to be the fairly easiest one to deal with is what we call Rupa Raga and Arupa Raga. Rupa 
right? There it is again, rupa raga, which means delight in formations. Mm. And a rupa raga means that we do not delight in formations. It's not that uh, the way that it looks like it's stated is rupa raga, which means raga is delight in the formations. And then a rupa raga looks like delight in non-formations rather than no delight in formations. You get the distinction? Mm. Yeah. Okay. No, so the A is not a rupa raga. It's a rupa raga. That's a difference in the language. We have not, to understand it, that. The correct one is not liking the form that comes. Right. Okay. Exactly. So it's either it's just liking and disliking a form. Right. As okay. opposed to loving forms and then loving formlessness, which is the way that is often understood. Mm, okay. And it has some some qualities to it. In fact, it needs to be studied both directions. So we can look at it in this way. Then is is that uh, rupa raga means being attached to being in a, in reality or living or uh, rupa raga means that we actually delight in taking formations of the mind. Did you see the distinction? Let me go through it again. Rupa raga in one context means just taking delight in formations. The other one means to be attached to being alive, basically, so that we could say that uh, Rupa Raga is, in fact, the uh, self-preservation instinct on one side. The and on the other side, right. So um, we, we, we want to delight in being alive. We want to delight in taking form. Okay. The other side of that, then, a Rupa Raga would means now we're going to take delight in no form. That's suicide or suicidal. Okay. Okay. Now, when I use the word suicide, I know that most people will hear that as a derogatory word. But another way of understanding suicide is that that's the end for everyone. Everyone commits suicide. In other words, when things get bad enough, we check out. That's what death is. Death is almost always a conscious choice. It hurts too much to live. Mm. Okay, so you'll say, well, what about a guy who falls out of a building or out of an airplane and he lands on the concrete floor? Right? Well, what is he doing the moment before he gets to uh, hit the ground? Some people could be dead before they hit the ground. They could give themselves a heart attack or whatever because of impending danger. Right? <laughs> and the other guy can say, so far, so good. Let's see how we handle this. And in fact, if he's had paratrooper training, even if he has no parachute, he's still going to land like he would be hitting the parachute, which means that he's going to be in a particular posture so that he can land on his feet, bend his legs and roll. And if that's his intention, he might survive. Wow. But a lot of people will just say, oh, no, this is death itself. I'll tell you something. 
there there's a very famous person. His name is, in fact, he was the president of the United States, Ike. Right? Dwight David Eisenhower jumped out of a plane and his parachute didn't open. And he landed and later became president of the United States. Wow. Was he in a wheelchair? Huh? Was he in a wheelchair? No. No? No, no. The one who was in the wheelchair was uh, uh, was because of polio. That was uh, Roosevelt. Mm. Okay. So in that regard, we're talking about that we still have choices and that we always go eventually to this a ruparaga, which means that there are going to be forces that take over at the point of death so that you accept death. There, there is a time when the self-preserve instinct fails or turns upside down. You can see that. I've saw, I actually saw it out here in the yard several times this year. When the rooster from across the street gets loose out of his coop, flies the coop, and runs into the dogs, and now the dogs are chasing the rooster. As long as the rooster is not caught, the dogs are chasing him. And if it's just one dog, the rooster will always be able to get away because as soon as the dog gets close, he can fly up into the air just a little bit. But with two dogs, the rooster has basically no chance. I know because I've watched these two dogs catch that rooster. But when they catch the rooster, guess what? The rooster becomes completely passive. He's ready to die. Uh. If I were that rooster, I'd be clawing that dog's nose with what and uh, with my with my claws. But no, the rooster just gives up. The same thing happens with rabbits. That when a rabbit is caught by a fox, the fox is digging that rabbit out of the hole. When the rabbit comes out of the hole, he's completely ready to go. Yeah, he is this... limp. And if I were that rabbit, I would be biting and clawing the nose of that <laughs> fox. This is something um, related to what I wanted to talk about a little bit later, which is that in 2019, there was this guy that got attacked by a mountain lion and he fought it off and killed it with his bare hands. Mm -hmm. Right. That's yeah. when the self-preserve instinct is very, very strong. And the a Ruparaga is very, very weak. Mm. Okay. So that's one definition of uh, uh, Rupa Raga versus a Rupa Raga is, is that when it's time to go, are you ready to go? Okay. Or are you going to take uh, uh, the fight otherwise? Now, this is the standard definition of it, but there's a better way or another way of looking at it, at least. And that is instead of saying um, a Rupa, a Rupa Raga. And take because this is taking delight in non reality or excuse me, non being. So death means that I am now willing to give up the body. It's time to go to die. I exhaust. I, I, I say goodbye and I'm out of it. I'm ready to go. That means that now we no longer are taking delight in being alive. Now we're going to allow death to come. And we could do that happily. Now we can take delight in dying. Right. 
when the time comes, we have much no choice except how to accept it. Are you going to accept going to death or are you not? Are you going to fight against it? And how will you know the difference? And that's an interesting point about how to know the difference because the guy, some people, when they met, uh, see the mountain lion, they say, now it's time to die. And other people will meet the mountain lion and says, come on, dude. <laughs> <laughs> and so this is always something that happens with inside the mind. Now let's look at the other side of it. The A Rupa Raga is now A Rupa Raga. And that means that we're no longer taking delight in forms. So rather than taking delight in the formless, and in fact, that first definition is where people get all confused about um, jhana in, uh, in the sense of uh, when they talk about rupa raga versus a rupa raga, what they mean is, is that, they, that the person is no longer taking delight in the physical world and they want to go take delight in a mental world. So it's the it's the heavy duty meditator who goes into the fourth jhana and he takes delight in being in that fourth jhana. That's what we could also say is a rupa raga. Got it. But there's a better way of talking about it, and that is instead of saying uh, rupa raga and a rupa raga, we can say now is a rupa raga. That's a different way of looking at it. The A Rupa Raga means that now I no longer take delight in having formations. Which means that going back to the time when the coffee was built on the active hard drives, when the when the when the coffee is spilled on the active hard drives, the Arahat will say, this is not me. This is not mine. That's not an issue. It's not a problem. And so I will not take delight in that form. The hard drives. Or I will not take delight in me who owns the drives. Right. So I no longer take delight in formations. I allow things to be like they are without having to make mental formations about them. This is the problem with the word form is, is that in Western uh, Buddhism, they um, commonly make very little distinction between the Pali word Kaya and the Pali word Rupa, where in fact are completely different. One is real reality and the other one is perceived reality. The Rupa is perceived reality just like an icon or an avatar or a symbol symbols avatars icons etc are forms a flag is a form is to represent something so the christian flag represents christianity christianity is the kaya the flag is the rupa got it is that making sense yeah the buddha rupa is a statue of the Buddha. It's a representation of the Buddha. It's not the real thing. Right. Okay. So when I say I've got Georgia on my mind, the song, 
guess what? I do not have Kaya, Georgia, the real Georgia, the entire state of Georgia with the city of Atlanta and all of that. That's the Kaya. But the Georgia on the mind is a Rupa. It's a mental image or a creation or a construction or a formation. And at the Arahat level, don't bother to do that kind of stuff. We no longer take delight in forming things. And so now it's a Rupa Raga, no longer taking delight in ideas and forms and things like that. So now we've got two of the five higher fetters, but this one seems to be quite important, doesn't it? Because in one sense, uh, it, it um, has magical qualities in the sense of, oh, the guy is just lusting after the fourth jhana, or maybe he's lusting after death itself, or maybe he's looking uh, to be reborn in heaven, which is a, uh, a heavenly place, which has no physical body to it. Well, guess what? Even though heaven is not Kaya, heaven is Rupa. It's a concept. It's a mental formation. So you could actually use the word concept as the word form. When you use the word form, that's a concept. Or uh, in the Pali, we use the word Rupa. Wait, can we go back to the Georgia example? So if you had the Georgia Kaya in your mind, what would that be exactly? That would that be would like. That would mean that I, my, part of my skull would be in Atlanta. I mean, excuse me, <laughs> part of my skull would be in Florida. Part of my skull would be in Mississippi. And part of my skull would be in South Carolina. And part of my skull would be in uh, Tennessee. Right. The real That's thing. ridiculous. Right. Yeah. The real thing. The real, real Georgia. The whole yeah. show would be in my mind if I had Georgia on my mind in a real sense of Kaya. But in fact, in the song, we're talking about having Georgia on my mind, which means now I'm thinking about Georgia, which means I'm constructing or I'm making concepts or I'm making forms, mental formations right. of Georgia. Okay. The Arahat, he don't got no Georgia on his mind. Mm. So making those forms is suffering. Both both the Kaya and the Rupa of Georgia is suffering. Think both of about them are. Georgia. Both of them are suffering. Have you ever mm. been to Georgia? <laughs> no. Even thinking about it is painful. <laughs> <laughs> Better not to have. Now I'm not really actually picking on Georgia. It's just because of the song. I mean, we could have had California on the mind and it would have been the same thing. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I'm not picking on Georgia. What I'm picking on is the fact that uh, there's the Kaya, there's the Rupa, and then there is the formless, which means no mental formations, which means no Sankara. Sankara is actually another word for these formations. Okay. Concepts, ideas. And so uh, the the formation of the idea of those hard drives that had coffee spilt on them are mine. That's a formation. Mm -hmm. The fact is, is those hard drives are not mine. They're just hard drives. And then somebody will say, well, who do they belong to? And the answer to that is that's to a formation is belonging, ownership, 
That's a formation. The real reality is uh, cause and effect. Or idiopapajayata. That's the cause and effect relationship that is real, but ownership is just a formation. All right, so we've covered these two, and rupa is the important uh, word, so that the uh, arahat no longer takes delight in building up concepts. And sometimes we can catch ourselves making concepts, and then we can say, wait a minute, I don't have to do that anymore. What a relief it is to not make concepts. Yeah. To not build forms, to not have imaginations. At one time when I was uh, a young computer scientist, the idea finally came to me or the formation finally came to me that I can invent hundreds of thousands of things mentally that will never become actual projects or kaya, that they will always remain at rupa and never become kaya. This is what happens with most software. Mm -hmm. Okay, that uh, the windows that was originally designed in the mind was not the windows that came out in reality. Right. Wait, so the uh, I'm trying to put this together now. So the um, the delight portion of it, though, is that kind of. the driver i suppose so like let's say if we think about somebody playing a slot machine over and over again again that dopamine hit off of playing the slot machine they're taking delight that's the delight portion that's coming in that's keeping them going on this mm -hmm. form of making a bunch of money right right and, the, so then and they the, don't so make the, a bunch of money and but when when the slot machine finally pays off and all those quarters came out the bottom with the lights and all of that that's finally the kaya but every time he pulls the handle that's rupa right yep every time he pulls that handle there's more hope i might get the kaya i might get the reality of it but right now it's only in my mind the is mm. going to take a look, or most, a lot of people will take a look at that slot machine and say, I don't have nothing to do with that thing. So the it's form is like, the, the form is basically like burning the mind, like spinning the mind. Because I, I could just see that just like spinning the mind the entire time as you spin the wheel. You keep spinning mm -hmm. the mind because you have that, that delight in this because we hot take, stuff. You take a delight in hot stuff. Creation. We take delight in creating things. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, we if we do that, if we take delight in making formations, then those formations that we make, we're subject to dealing with because we made them up. We can we we conjured this thing up. We manufactured it. Right. right. Now that we've manufactured it that uh, the manufacturing of it is actually a kind of restlessness. Mm -hmm. Okay, so this is now the next item on the list is restlessness. The next one on the line is now that I've made this thing, how it does it compare to everybody else's? This is where conceit comes in and this conceit is the real issue with the self because we wind up with the self being in competition with other people. 
with other things. We compete, but we don't compete over Kaya. Uh, uh, generally, we re we compete over Rupa. We re we compete over our ideas of things. Yeah. And so we often cannot really compare Rupa because one one Rupa is in one guy's mind and the other Rupa is in the other guy's mind and both of them have the idea, well, we cannot really battle this out at the level of Rupa. We've got to go to the level of Kaya. And that's where the contest actually comes out is in Kaya, but the original concept contest started as conceptualizations. Right. And that's where the uh, the uh, mana comes in. Uh, mana is the poly word, and what it means is um, conceit. But a working definition that we could use is competition. Mm -hmm. And what we're competing over is our concepts, our rupas, not our kayas. Kayas don't need to compete because there they are. It's only the Rupa that comes in that says this Kaya is better than that Kaya. Yeah. That, all right, so it's all concept. So the Lamborghini is one car and the Toyota is another car. They're just two different cars. But when you say, but the Lamborghini is faster than the Toyota, that's a concept. Trying to make the Lamborghini better than the Toyota. Except the Toyota has been go going too many down the road at 60 clicks while the uh, Lamborghini is in the repair shop. And now who's faster? <laughs> 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 and, and so in that regard, we have to understand that uh, this competition thing is built in restlessness. It's built in dissatisfaction and it's built in concepts. And these concepts are mental concepts, it's me these mental forms that we make, these rupas that we have. And then the last one uh, is what we call ignorance. Now, this is the final ignorance. In fact, we could say, wait a minute, what are you talking about? Because we've already done ignorance with the first three fetters. We've come to the knowledge when we came to Sotapan. The answer to this is, is that the reason that um, ignorance is the last fetter to go is because finally we accept that we are in fact ignorant. That it doesn't matter how much we know, we don't know everything. We cannot know everything. Some things are unknowable. Some things are irrelevant. In fact, most of the reason why things are unknowable is because they are irrelevant. Here's an interesting point about that. The Big Bang Theory, we don't know. The Christians say, oh, God did it. And the others say, well, it was coming out of nothing, but it was a bang and all of that kind of stuff. Actually, the answer to those kind of questions is that it's irrelevant. Mm. Why yeah. is it irrelevant? Because we don't know what caused it, so we've got no evidence. In other words, all we have is Rupa. We have no Kaya at all about the Big Bang. That's gone. It's over. The only thing that's left is the imaginations of the Christian preacher 
and the imaginations of the physical scientist. But that's all we have left is just this imagination and both of them are in ignorance about what really happened in the Big Bang and neither one of them like that at all. So where we're coming down to is, is that there's going to come to the point of a limit to one's knowledge. And that should not be an issue at all because the only things that uh, that the only thing that was important is that we begin to understand how we create things in the mind and then become attached to them and compete with others over them. And we still don't have it good enough. In other words, no matter how con how good my concept is, I could improve it and I could improve it again and improve it again. And there's no end to the improvements that I can make in my concept where at the same time that concept that I'm creating still has no use in reality as a kaya. It still doesn't exist in kaya. And so there's far out knowledge. Here's the rupa going in the direction of far out knowledge while kaya is remaining where it was. In other words, we're getting further and further and further away from reality in our imaginations. Yeah. This is because we are in pursuit of knowledge. Now, in the beginning, we were in uh, in pursuit of knowledge intentionally. In other words, we needed knowledge of the self. We needed knowledge of Sila Bhatta Paramasa about the way that the world worked. We needed knowledge about the path. But once we've gotten the knowledge that we need, all of the rest of the knowledge is becomes irrelevant. We don't need it. We've gotten enough. And so the Arahat, like Achan Po, for instance, he does not need to know anything about medical science. He does not have to even know that NASA exists, never mind what NASA does. The Buddha did not even know about uh, the inch of the yard or the measuring sticks or anything like that. But he knew enough. Achan Po knows enough. So the question is, how can we come to the point of being completely ignorant and all we know is enough? All we know is enough for liberation. That we don't have to know everything. We will not know everything. In fact, we become del deeply delighted in not having to know everything. Mm. That I'm completely comfortable and happy not knowing how stars are formed. Well, actually, I do know how stars are formed. So let me say. <laughs> so what? How do? You, um, what's the? What's the uh, the additional step that's required, or uh, next level that's required to get from the anagami to the arahat? like Ajahn Po. Um, to catch our mental constructions. To catch it while it's being constructed so that we do not attach to any mental constructions. Stop creating forms. Yeah, stop creating forms. Stop form. Stop. That's a good word. Stop formalizing things we believe in. 
an example of that, because uh, this happened a lot when I was a monk in the United States, in North Carolina, it seems to have been the major issue. Uh, almost every Christian seemed to answer the, ask the same question. And that is, what do you believe in? As a Buddhist monk here in North Carolina, what do you believe in? That was their question, right? Uh-huh. My answer was, I don't believe in belief. I believe in investigation. Uh-huh. Except that in the by saying that, you, if you noticed, I just changed the definition of the word belief. When I say, I don't believe in belief, there's two different beliefs there. I believe in investigation. So now we have three different uses of the word belief in there. Do you see that? Uh-huh. Okay. But a better way of saying it is, is that I don't believe in belief. I investigate because I know that I will never find out anything through believing it, but I can find out through investigation. And if I can't find out through investigation, then there's no answer to the problem. You do not go from a failed investigation back to belief. And what was the Christian's response to that? Uh, certainly not delight, (laughs) (laughs) mostly confusion because those people have been taught that belief is the most important thing. And that you could see the remnants of that in the way that the Pali has been translated into English, especially the word shrada or shada. With or without the R just like karma and comma, with or without the R, just like Maya and Myra, with or without the R, just like Dharma and Dhamma, with or without the R, we also have that one too. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, um, they have a belief system because they're supposed to believe things. The word Shraddha does not believe, to mean belief, it does not mean faith. Shraddha means confidence. Mm. Okay. In other words, if you've got a real step that you could step on, once you step on that step, then you can step on the next step, which is real. Kaya. To where belief is all rupa. It's all rupa. And once you step on rupa, you can't make another step because your step on rupa did not lift you up the way that a step on kaya will. So you're always at the same place with one belief after another belief after another belief after another belief, and you've made no steps forward at all. It's just belief, 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 to where shwara is built on confidence, and that confidence is the fact that you can make a step. One step will lead to another step because the confidence builds. And that third step then is even more confident than the second because now you've got a a two-step history. And then your fourth step is even more confident than your first three steps because now you have three steps of proof. So it's built on Kaya instead of uh, It's built on Kaya, not on Rupa. Right. Your confidence is built on reality of success, and faith is built upon concepts after concepts after concepts after concepts. And when you get a whole group of concepts, a whole, how to say it, a whole rupa of rupa, a whole collection of concepts, that's a religion. Mm. 
Yeah, this is really, uh, I feel like it's talking about what I wanted to talk about in a sense, because it is a form, but because uh, I wanted to ask you about, because um, I've, I've really started to to form in my mind that I want to do another retreat, like, relatively soon, but okay. I want to, but I want to go camping, and I've never been camping before, so I've been doing a lot of research on camping, so I wanted to ask you about that. Uh, All right. Well, in that regard, if you are well planned with your Rupa, then when you go to create the Kaya, it will be much easier to do because you know what you're doing because you planned it out in advance. But most plans don't work out the way that you thought it was. So it doesn't matter yeah. how much planning and thinking about camping that you're doing, it will not be the camping that you actually go on. The Rupa <laughs> of camping is going to be completely different than the Kaya of camping. <laughs> That's why I mentioned the mountain lions earlier. <laughs> Hopefully well, that doesn't factor in. <laughs> well, in the time of the Buddha, there were that kind of thing. There's actually stories about it. Tigers. But normally what happens is, is that... Uh, um, The lions themselves are smart enough to know that a big, big animal that's taller than they are, like a human being, is going to be a big job. Yeah. And so mountain lions have got to have a good reason to attack a human being. Yeah. That's an important point, that your size alone is going to give you a lot of... Um, um, uh, advantage out in the wilderness, not against a grizzly bear, because he's got you on that point. But for mountain <laughs> lions, they're, they're about the size of a dog, you know. They're not all of that oh. ferocious when you when you're twice as tall as they are. You, uh, you haven't you haven't seen uh, the revenant, have you? The what? Revenant. I don't know that one. No, is that a movie? It's a 2015 movie. I think it's the one that Leonardo DiCaprio finally won an Oscar for. And there's a scene in there. There's a pretty lengthy scene of him getting mauled by a bear. It's actually based on a true story, so you can survive these things. <laughs> he gets mauled in for a really long time, but he survives and mm -hmm. travels and, and hikes like half of America. So he was very uh, Ruparaga about it. Okay. <laughs> did not give up. <laughs> yeah, he did not give up. It's it's you you got to check out the scene. It's pretty it's pretty riveting. But anyways, well, it also depends upon where you go camping. If you go camping in a set campground, it's probably pretty safe. If you go to the most dangerous place you can find, it's probably not. It's probably dangerous there. <laughs> So it yeah. has to do with, with where you go. But if you're looking for seclusion, then a regular um, state park or federal park would do just fine. That's kind of an intermediate place. It's not too out in the wilderness. A regular, so a regular state park on the campground, but won't there be other campers around there? It depends upon how, what it, uh, your eye level in other words, if your eyes are down, there's nobody around. But if you're up and around, I'm sure you can find other campers. Yeah. I So I actually have been doing some research, like I said, and I found one. I think it's called uh, 
um, desolate wilderness, desolate wilderness, and it's it's in Lake Tahoe. It's near Lake Tahoe. Uh-huh. And so I was looking at that one, and actually on the website it says like there's it's a campground, but they're far enough apart where people can get seclusion and time to reflect. It says on the website. So excellent. That sounds um, like just the place. I know it sounds like just the place. So, um, have you you've been camping before, right? Yes, I'm sure. <laughs> before, during, and after. <laughs> so, what's your uh, your tips on that? I have like a bunch of questions that I could ask you if you want me to, but I don't know. Do you have any general tips? Number one, keep your campfire small. Okay. Big bonfire, you don't need a small fire. That's that's one point. I don't uh, know if they allow campfires at this place. It might only be allowed to have like a cooking They have like certain steve like steam, that. Yeah, that kind of thing. Yeah. So that would be one thing is, uh, yeah. <laughs> Number one, follow the campground's regulations. <laughs> okay. Got it. And number two, if you do have fires, make the fires small. Don't make them large. Okay. Be conservative. Number three, uh, the tent should be on a flat place, which means kind of not on the side of a hill. And if you can, find a place that's on um, high ground or the top of a hill. That's the very best place. Okay. Why? Because if you're on the top of the hill uh, camping there, then when it rains, if it does rain, you're not have you don't have any chance of flooding. Right. If you're on okay. the side of the hill, if it rains, you're going to have some flooding, uh, some water coming from uh, uh, the side of the hill that is going uphill. Yeah. So that's. Uh, there's a lot of things that we could talk about, but uh, gosh, it's been many years since I've done it. One of the things that we can say, though, is is that we don't really need a lot of camping equipment because the Buddhist monks, the entire robe set and everything about a Buddhist monk is designed for camping. The Sangati is camp gear. The robe is camp gear. The pot is cap gear. Everything is camp gear. Mm. Yeah. And so the monks have been doing camping for a long, long time. And in the time of the Buddha, that's what they were doing. They were out camping. Okay. I'm not just going to break three things. <laughs> it's my first time. <laughs> well, you'd, camping is actually fairly inexpensive. Yeah, in the sense that a tent, like a hundred dollars or so, you don't need a fancy tent, just a little tent. You need some bedding, but some of the bedding that you've got at home could be used, especially if you're not having to hike a long way from your parking. That in fact, most campgrounds you could park fairly close to it, which means that a lot of the safety can be <clears throat> done. You could use your car for. Uh, Securing equipment, securing your body. If there's uh, bears or anything like that, just get into the car. There's well, that's only the bad part. I don't have a car, so. 
well, no car. <laughs> then then you got to uh, carry the equipment in there with you. So that's another thing is to pack light. Yeah. If you've got a car, that's one thing you could pack light in the car. But if you're going to have to carry the stuff, that's a different packing light. So pack light, carry very little with you. Okay. And go and go off into seclusion and enjoy yourself. Okay, I wanted to ask you. So like sitting on the like sitting is gonna be different, I feel like if I'm gonna not bring a chair, because I typically sit with a chair. So I'm gonna have to learn to sit on the ground. And I'm probably gonna have to sit for shorter than I even do now. The important thing then that I would say is, is that if there is an incline or a hill, sit in a way so that you're facing downhill, so that your buttocks is higher than your legs. Sitting on a hill is actually much better than sitting on a flat surface for beginners. Okay. Why? Because so, the, the hill itself elevates uh, the tailbone. Okay. So that would be one of the things. Also, you can take um, a padded cushion or a pillow or something like that for sitting on. Okay. But don't sit so long that the legs start to hurt. If the legs start to hurt, then get up and do walking meditation. Got it. Okay, let your body be your guide for uh, when to sit and when to walk, rather than having a clock do it. Well, maybe this will be a good thing because I really have never really sat for any period of time on the ground before, so I, it'll be a learning experience for sure. You might, uh, in fact, want to experiment with the clock in the sense that, like, uh, the day that you arrive, you'll need it, or that you did to get there, and then the day that you'll leave, you'll need the clock. But the second day that you're there, you don't need the clock at all. Why do I need the and clock so, the first day? Well, because you got to decide, well, maybe the clock you need is only the daylight. When you get to the campsite, it doesn't even matter what time it is, day or night. But yeah. when you leave, there's some uh, clock involved. Yeah. No, but no while clock. you're there, you don't need a clock at all. There's no reason to have a clock. So. Some people will say, well, how will I know when to eat? <laughs> um, but I, I, I might, I'm probably gonna, um, maybe want to take some pictures or something like that. I might okay. do that. But so, well, like, with my, with my could, phone, that's okay, right? If I use my phone to take yeah, a couple sure. pictures. Yeah, using your phone for a couple of pictures is great. The big, the real problem with the phone is the Wi-Fi connection. Right. Yeah, but, my uh, cellular take, take pictures, there. that's easy enough, right? Uh, yeah. In fact, you would enjoy uh, taking pictures of your campsite and pictures of the trail and pictures of any mountains that you're around and things like that. So, yeah, that would be a good thing to do is to take a dozen or so pictures. Okay. And you just Hundreds mentioned. Don't <laughs> no, definitely not. Um, you just mentioned that 
the food, the eating. I mean, this is kind of a more of a loaded question, I guess, but uh, I've been trying to experiment with the eating once a day, just like here. And to be honest, I've not been successful yet. I, I mean, I think I did it one time, but I keep ending up like going for another meal like before bed because I get like really hungry. And so I'm That's just wondering. Let your hunger be the guide, but also let your hunger be in training. Mm. In the sense that if you are hungry, eat. Okay. But if you are also hungry, the other thing to do with it is just look at the hunger in the sense of, yeah, this is hunger, but so what? Yeah. Mm -hmm. I, I that's kind of what I do right now. Like, like you're basically saying, just like kind of see how long you could go without it, right? right. I gotta, I gotta move because my laptop's gonna die. Uh, back to the bright room. Okay. I don't know if this is gonna be any good. I will say this: that when I was first a monk, I was quite surprised. In fact, every time he did it, I was surprised. But he kept doing it. Achan Po would show up in the middle of the day or the afternoon or something like that with bananas mm -hmm. or an orange or some fruit. In other words, he was more concerned with me being well taken care of than he was me following some stupid set of rules. Mm. But okay. he stopped doing it after a while. <laughs> Which I would expect. Yeah. Okay, because I didn't need it anymore. So it does take a while. It's part of the training. And in fact, in every meditation retreat that I know of, they, some of them do one meal and then a coffee or a tea in the evening. Others will have two meals, one at breakfast and one at uh, lunch. And then the evening meal will be nothing but coffee and maybe a snack. Do you drink coffee uh, in the evenings? When I say coffee, I'm talking about just any hot drink. Normally, it's a Milo kind of thing, or it is uh, in Thailand. It's something that I don't know what it is, but it uh, tastes uh, kind of a combination between coffee and, and chocolate. I've had Milo before. It's really good. Okay, so I like uh, <laughs> but uh, coffee so, or a tea or a hot drink or something like that would be all that you need, or maybe that and a piece of fruit. But normally, when we get really hungry, we think that because I am really hungry, that means the only way that this hunger is going to be ceased is by getting a lot of food. The right answer to that is, is that I'm hungry now. Let me take this piece of bread and I'll eat this one piece of bread or uh, or whatever. And then I'll check again. Am I hungry now? And then I'll eat a little bit more. And am I hungry now? And pretty soon we can monitor the fact that we're not hungry. And a lot of times we're eating when we're not hungry. Because that was the food was already on the plate. Yeah. So start monitoring the hunger so that you can solve the issue of the hunger. And that um, you can also say that hunger can be your friend. Mm -hmm. 
an example of that is the hunger can be like, um, you know, uh, Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa talks about it in the sense that the best time to practice Anapanasati is when you're sick. You also know that uh, tennis players, for for instance, tennis players will will put heavy uh, weights on their wrist and then practice tennis with their arms extra heavy. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, we can think of that also as hunger. Hunger is just another opportunity for practice. Okay. And that we can say that it's a uh, it has two advantages. One is is that even though the body is uh, is giving signs of hunger, I can handle that. That hunger is not dangerous. Hunger is just merely a sensation. You know, the one thing I I, I, I uh, see what you're saying um, and the one thing that I find to be kind of interesting with that is that the hunger is located sort of right where that meditation object that you're likely to be using is, you know, <laughs> it's right on the stomach, stomach area, I guess. So, OK, yes, that area of the body, as well as the upper part of the chest, the more breathing area is also uh part of that but yes it is true that hunger is in the area of the body where we're paying attention to it so knowing the hunger and regulating it now here's something that's quite an interesting point and that is is that the hunger is a formation of the mind as much as it is a physical response yes there is kaya and there is also rupa Okay, and the way that that happens is, is that if you are in the habit of eating three meals a day, then the body gets used to eating three meals a day. And so when you miss one of those meals, the body will know it. And it will say hunger because you missed a meal. Yeah. If you start eating two meals a day. Now the body will adjust to that and start getting hungry for the set for two meals a day. And if you begin to train the body, so it's okay that you're hungry now, but you're not going to get a whole lot of food, maybe just an apple or a banana, and that's all you get, or a piece of bread, and that's all you get, because that's all you really need right now. Then we get down to the point that we can begin to have one main meal and one small meal a day, or maybe one big meal and then two small meals. But better would be one big meal and a small meal. Yeah. Then that small meal can be smaller and smaller to the point that it's just a cup of liquid, a cup of hot liquid like a coffee or uh, with sugar and, and milk or a Milo or something like that. And that's all we need to uh, rid that hunger. Yeah, that makes sense. And um, then we can eat once a day. The Buddha, actually, I've seen a medical article that was written by a doctor and the whole article was about the Buddha. This medical doctor was talking about the benefits of eating one meal a day and how the Buddha had stumbled onto something that was quite remarkable. And the Buddha, I I forget what sutta it is, it's in one of the the 60s in the Majjhima Nikaya where the Buddha um, 
there's a whole lot going on with it. It's a complicated topic, but in this particular sutta, the Buddha says that he eats only one meal a day and he feels fine with it. That is actually, he feels light. Mm. And that it is actually a yeah. healthy way to live, is to eat only once a day, which means that then through the through the rest of the day, the night, and the morning after, that the body is actually fasting and the body actually digests the food that you had in that one meal and completely digested so that the, now the body is on a real daily cycle. Before it was on a three meal a day cycle and the body got used to that. And so hunger and other physical sensations came up because it was used to eating three meals a day. Yeah. When you change it to one meal, a uh, big meal and one small meal a day, then that changes uh, uh, the body's chemistry. And then that uh, second meal a day, that small meal can be dispensed with. And we don't need it anymore. Yeah. So um, actually, I have experience with that because I feel like as a kid, you're kind of uh, set up to have the three meals a day, or at least you're at least set up to have breakfast because you know, typically you probably get some breakfast because um, your well, mom would make it. In conclusion with the uh, uh, the milk industry really made breakfast important. They, there's so much propaganda about breakfast in the right. United States. Right. And then so like when I when Guess I moved what? to like. The monks get up early in the morning, they do some chanting, they do all kinds of things, then they go out on Bendabad, which takes an hour, then they mull around for an hour, and by the time they eat, their first meal is at eight in the morning earliest. Many other monks, most of the monks, don't eat until noon. What's mm -hmm. this thing about breakfast? Yeah, no, so what I was getting at was that then when I went to school, I think maybe like it just became too much work or too much of an inconvenience to to do the whole breakfast thing. So you start skipping that. And then now at work, I definitely I'm just like I want as much sleep as possible. I don't want to get up early to make food. So uh, or mm -hmm. I don't want like I'd, I'd rather do something else than than take time to make breakfast. It just doesn't seem that important. And I don't like I remember there was a period of time when. I thought that, oh, no, I'm not getting breakfast. This is like a problem. But then it became normal and natural to be eating only lunch and lunch and dinner. Although we do have uh, like snacking in the office. That's a, there's snacks in the office. So there's that, too. But starting at about the age of 14 until I graduated from high school, I was a paper boy. First starting out on bicycles and then motorbikes and then bigger motorbikes and finally triumphed. <laughs> mm. But the point is, is that when uh, delivering newspapers, no time for breakfast. Right. So I, I stopped eating breakfast at about the age of 14. I didn't eat breakfast again until I was in the Navy. Because I eat three meals a day in the Navy, but after the Navy, I haven't had breakfast for <laughs> 50 years. Wow. <laughs> you never do uh, brunch <laughs> or breakfast breakfast for well, dinner or breakfast for well, lunch? Brunch, breakfast brunch, food? <laughs> brunch is just, a, is just a mental formation, but brunch means uh, that, it, uh, that it's later than breakfast. Yeah, no, I didn't. I didn't mean that. I meant more like, uh, do you, 
like, have you had, like, pancakes and waffles in 50 years? Uh, pancakes and waffles are actually part of the Thai diet now, but right. not for not as breakfast food. Then, mm. in fact, Thailand does have traditional breakfast foods, jolk, and uh, uh, things like that. Uh, that, uh, let us say, the Western breakfast foods have not been brought from Thailand into Thai breakfast, they've just been brought into Thailand into normal Thai cuisine. So it's Makes not sense. normally can so pancakes, yes, but not for breakfast. Yeah. It's pretty, you know, loading down with carbs in the morning. That's one way to start the day. I wouldn't recommend it. <laughs> um, and I noticed during my last retreat that just like the eating alone, just eating that lunch meal would, would absolutely take me out. <laughs> like I could not could not stay awake. I had to like go take a nap every single day is what I found after eating lunch. But that's typical. And not yeah. only that, but if uh, especially in the tropics. Uh, and so eating a noonday meal and then having afternoon off. Basically, the whole afternoon, you can go lounge around or lay down or take a nap or do anything that you want to. But then that means that because you've gotten so much sleep in the afternoon that you're up at night, which is actually what the Buddha would recommend. That's what was alert. happening to me. Remember, we talked about that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> OK, Yeah, you'd be surprised at how our culture has defined uh what we do with our particular hours throughout the day mm -hmm. when you're going on a retreat you all of those rules and all those ways of doing things no longer are appropriate and so you can live in a much more natural way and it is natural to have a nap in the afternoon yeah so speaking of being up at night and things of that nature I, w I wanted to ask you the question. We already talked about the mountain lion, sort of, I guess. I mean, like, I feel like, you know, you've got to bring a knife on, like, these trips. Like, you're going to need one anyways to, like, to use, like, for, for just utility. But I feel like it just makes sense, like, in that situation, if you have one, like, if anything were to happen, like, you would recommend at least probably having that and, like, like, bear spray. Is that something I should look into, do you think? And then also like that would depend upon where you go. So I'm not the right guy to ask about that. That's something that you could ask for others. But I would recommend yeah. it uh, because the knife doesn't have the weight that you need for some cutting that a hand axe would be also useful. So I would say take a take a knife, a camping knife and also a hand axe. Okay. A hatchet. Okay. Um, so then the, the real issue, cause I, I used to like deal with this and I really didn't like this even being in New York city. Cause I had a, a backyard in New York. Um, and in the summertime, even that would breed a lot of mosquitoes and things like that. And mm -hmm. I was never, ever like particular, I mean, maybe when I was really young, but like particularly comfortable with um, just insects in general. 
and just wildlife in general. So how am I going to now go and live amongst them and probably be, you know, getting a, a lot of uh, doing a lot of blood donation for for this period of time? <laughs> okay. I will answer that by saying this is what we do here. This is, uh, let us say it's a product that's manufactured out of 100% cow dung. Okay. <laughs> These are what are called mosquito coils. These things will burn for about eight hours or so. This is a package of them that it comes in. Uh-huh. And that... After I have one or two, when I begin to notice that the mosquitoes are out after one or two bites, that's when we light the mosquito coil. Mm. It is possible to get bitten by a mosquito occasionally after the coil is uh, is lighted, but normally the coil will be enough. Now, in some cases, the coil uh, is obnoxious to, to others, so these coils are not allowed in a meditation hall for some reason or another, uh, at Watsu and Mok, but that uh, the coils are common for the guys to use in the coochies. In fact, these mosquito coils are often one of the gifts that are given along with candles. And, uh, and in fact, the mosquito coil is the, um, let us say, somewhat modern equivalent of the incense sticks. When you give candles and incense and a, um, and a lotus flower. These are traditional gifts to give to the monk, but the ca- but the candles they use at night because they're going to be up at night, and the incense they use because that's the mosquito coil. Yeah. I remember one, one time we were sitting up all night and that I had an incense stick at each corner. I had one back here, one here, one here, and one here, and I was sitting just completely surrounded by mis- uh, these incense sticks. And they worked by the mosquito coil, right? So the so, incense sticks for that's something that a lot of people don't understand in the West because the uh, the incense sticks they think are solely for incense. Oh, they work as mosquito coil. No, too. the incense sticks are uh, are mosquito repellent. Mm, okay, and that uh, some of the mosquito coils that we have are lilac. You can get a lilac mosquito coil. You can get uh, sandalwood mosquito coil, just like they have in India, all the various uh, scents. But the original uh, incense stick was not just for incense. It was also as a mosquito coil Mm. or as a mosquito repellent. So that's the first thing. And you can probably find uh, something at Walmart or Kmart or somewhere like that 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 burns but nowadays they uh, have some sort of lotion a spray much more expensive in the west these mosquito coils are cheap i'm talking about that whole bag of mosquito coils that huge bag that's got dozens of them in there is less than three dollars so i i spend less than three dollars a month on mosquito Mm, okay so you could you would, not you could not go to Walmart and buy a can of spray DEET for three dollars and it will not last a month. Right. So do you recommend so you're saying that like let's say I take my afternoon nap and I'm and I wake up at like 
I go to bed at like nine and I wake up at like one or something like that. Do you recommend like, what do you recommend doing? Just like going and meditating or do you recommend like staying up later and then going to bed? I don't know. What are you, what were you kind of getting at? there? I, I recommend paying close attention to your natural cycles of clock. Okay. That if in fact we're uh, going out camping in order to get away from it all, then why would you want to bring all of it with you? Like the <laughs> rules of when you should do this, that, and the other thing. Yeah, yeah, right. Okay. <laughs> all right. Um, Even the part of the issue about when do the monks eat has to do not with when do they eat, but when they eat has to, is dependent upon when they go out for food. And that's the important point. When they go out for food is when it's the right time to go out for food. At one time, I was so delusional thinking that the monks go out early for breakfast meant that the, uh, in India at the time of the Buddha, the, uh, all the women got up really early in the morning and did their day's cooking. And the monks came by while they were doing their cooking. It took me a long time to figure out and being told that that's stupid. <laughs> that the Indians are really great at eating at night. Uh. You go to India or uh, Ramadan's the same thing. They fast all day and they eat all night. So why do the monks then go in the morning for the food? The answer is that's when they go to get the leftovers because they, the women don't clean their house and clean up after the party that night. They clean up in the morning. Yeah, And the monks go when they're cleaning up because then the monks get their leftovers from the night before. Right. That's why they go out in the morning is to make it easy for the people who are going to feed them. Mm -hmm. So they go when the food, when the scraps and the, um, the leftovers are, are available. More than one time I've got a half-eaten banana and we're still a really small fish. It was only this big, a little tiny fish. It was already half-eaten when I got it. <laughs> 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 uh, you know really quickly i heard this one monk say that when he was talking about the eating one meal a day and how he still does that he kind of put it in a way that did not sound the same way that you're putting it right now so he was saying that you have the one meal and then you're just kind of stuck with that sense of hunger for the rest of the period and that just that whereas we're saying that here that would, we adapt. that would be a new monk that would be the way of a new monk who doesn't understand after a few years it winds up being completely backwards from that because the body no longer and it also has a lot to do with attitude in other words he's saying well i want to be a monk but i can't control the body so i'll just have to put up with being hungry every day and so now he is hungry every day. He's in the yeah. victim's position. I don't think he was a new monk, by the way, but yeah. So. Well, he may have been thinking about old times. He may have been thinking about and talking about the students because he knows mm. that they're new. Okay. But over a period of time, the, the body adjusts to the rhythm of the eating. Mm-hmm. And that hunger becomes no longer an issue. Mm -hmm. Okay. That, um, that, that hunger is just, you know, it's just a bodily sensation. 
and we do not have to have the word uh, the feeling of hunger or the word hunger associated with eating at all. Mm-hmm. We just say all oh, the body is hungry. So what? Now, that's an important issue when you're out camping. That's one thing. But you can imagine that a monk is the back of a watt. He's living fairly in seclusion. Uh, the watt's a big watt and it's a jungle. And so it takes about 20 minutes to get to the front of the watt. Now, out at the front of the watt is the road where you have uh, food stalls and all kinds of stuff. So when I'm talking about the, the front of the watt, that's where society is, including food stalls and all kinds of things. But it's a 20 minute walk from the back of the watt up to the front. Now, the question is about the hunger. Is this hunger so strong that I'm going to walk 20 minutes to get something to eat and then 20 minutes back? That's a 40 minute walk just because of hunger. Or am I going to sit here and enjoy the fact that I don't have to go anywhere? This hunger is not much to me. I can handle this. Mm-hmm. And so it has to do with an attitude, you see. So the hunger is a phys- has a quality of a physical sensation. But real hunger is a mental state. It's a rupa, not a kaya. You have a little bit of kaya, which is the body sensation, and then you have the rupa, which is a big, I've got to eat because of this little tiny sensation called hunger. Right. Because we've been taught, I mean, listen to the way that mommies treat children. We do that all over the world, even in Thailand. Are you hungry? Are you Mm -hmm. hungry? (laughs) <laughs> because if you're hungry and I catch you hungry, I've got to get some food into you right away or you'll die or something. <laughs> <laughs> and so we in our culture have been taught uh, in this indirect fashion that hunger is important or it's a, uh, it's a sign of danger. Where in fact, no, it's a habit that we've gotten into. We get into the habit of being hungry because of the eating style that we have. There is actually one society that I know of that that typically eats four meals a day. It happens to be in Northern Europe and they happen to be dairy farmers. So the dairy farmers in Northern Europe wind up eating four meals a day, an early breakfast and then a midday breakfast and then uh, uh, a lunch and then an evening meal. So they eat four four meals a day, which means then that they're getting hungry four times a day. If you go down to three meals a day and do that for a couple of years, then you'll be hungry three times a day. If you get down to two meals a day, then you'll only be hungry twice a day. And if you're um, uh, going to one meal a day, then you may not ever feel hungry. Yeah. But okay, in all I'm... cases, hunger is not an important issue. Yeah. Okay. I think Not the I, physical sensation, the physical sensation of hunger, the actual kaya part of it is not an important issue. We've been taught that it is, and so we make it an important issue in the mind. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, so I'm the on board with that, you there, I can but... handle this. I can handle that. It's just a little bit of hunger. I'll do all right with this. No problem. Yeah. Um. The, the the next question I had written down, but I don't know if it's really going to be an issue with with this place. Maybe it will, maybe it won't. But I guess with planning, I can figure it out. But I was just thinking I might, you know, I'm just thinking about, like, I've never been camping before. 
and I'm going camping solo. I'm just like, I don't know where I'm going. Like, I've never been to this part of Nevada. Like, I don't even know where I'm going. Like, I'm just like the fear of getting lost. Like, how do I, am I going to know where I'm going? <laughs> like, going to this place, it's like completely. You need know. a compass. You can either okay. use a magnetic compass, a little dude that's about this big, but there's an easier compass. And that is start paying attention to where the sun is in the day. Start okay. paying attention to what the sun is doing. Okay. The sun is your best clock. It will also show you directions. Once you understand the nature of the sun and where it's going, you will understand um, directions. Mm -hmm. But okay. since you're going to a state park, the likelihood of you getting lost is not high anyway. Okay. <laughs> but one thing is for sure, and that is that no matter where you are, the right way to look at it is, is that civilization is probably downhill. Mm. Not okay. uphill. Okay. Yeah. Now, the next point of that is, is that that's not always the case, but it's generally the case. And when you have a very populated area, you're not going way out into the wilderness so that you have to go up and down and up and down mountains to get where you're going. That generally any downhill will take you where you want to go. And the easiest way to do that is to find some water or some path. If you can find a path, anybody's old path, if there's a, a walkway or whatever, get on that walkway and go downhill. If you find a creek or uh, uh, water any place, then find that water and go downhill. At the end of that downhill journey, that path will lead to civilization and the, and the water will also. Okay. Okay. There's two places where that doesn't work. One is Salt Lake City. Okay. And the other one is the Dead Sea. Following water downhill in those two places will give you, get, take you to the wrong place. But in all other cases with real mountains and all of that kind of stuff, going downhill is the safe place to go. Especially water. I'm going to send you... Yeah, I want to send you some pictures of this place, man. It, it looks really nice. <laughs> right. Uh, so, and then my next question uh, is going to be about, so I'm kind of set on, like, if, I, if I'm if i going to do this, like, I, I want to get, I, I'm thinking that I want to do 14 days. Do you think I'm, I'm biting off too much? You can leave any time you want to you are not biting off the 14th day on the first day true yeah <laughs> so okay <laughs> on whatever day it is the day you can ask is today too much no no i can handle today so when you're biting off too much to chew the, uh, in that phrase, when, what you're saying is, when will I become a victim? 
on what day will I turn from a lion into a victim? The answer is, I don't know. <laughs> That's for you to figure out. Be aware of what's happening. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's a good point. <laughs> I'll look out for that. And All then right. hopefully I can just take a deep breath and just take a deep out. breath and say, I can handle one more day of this. This is really actually quite good. Yeah. The next thing that I wanted to ask you, so I'm thinking about doing this. Okay, do you have an uh, an opinion on two things, I guess? Like so the place I got picked, I feel like it has like a good variation. Like there's some places where like there's more trees and there's some places where it's more like a lake and mountainy. I don't know. I feel like there's a good variation. Like, do you think? Go for the trees. Go for the trees. Okay. I'll try and go for the trees. Yeah. Um, Buddha recommends trees and forest. He does not mention mountains and lakes. Okay. <laughs> go, go to a forest, go to the foot of a tree. An empty hut, right? An empty hut. Right. <laughs> um, and, and a tent makes a really excellent empty hut. Right. Okay, so with that said, though, I'm thinking about timing right now, and I know that the temperature is going to start to drop as the summer goes by. Do you think, like, I should try and jump on this, like, in terms of, like, do you think it's a bad idea to to go and I, w I don't think I want to do it in the winter. I mean, that's just a little bit extreme, probably. <laughs> it depends but, upon where you go and what you're doing. I would not recommend a Rocky Mountain retreat in the wintertime. Yeah, no. But Lake uh, Tahoe, that's, I mean, that's not so bad as. Uh, I'm uh, thinking like September. I, I looked at the I looked at the weather report for September and they're kind of saying like the high is like 70, 76, and then the low is like in the 40s, mid 40s. I think that's or it was oh, like the high makes, was 69. That, that sounds like t-shirt temperature. You might want to take a t-shirt with you or something. Yeah. Well, not 40s, but. I'm joking. <laughs> Many people, the t-shirt is 70. Yeah, that, that's uh, that's what it says here. Lake Tahoe average is about 74 at the high and then 46 at the low. So I guess that's like probably nighttime. So really, yeah. that's not bad because I, what I want to do is I want to try and pull the trigger around Labor Day. So I get that one like free day, maybe start the week before. So like I'm just now that the next my last question is just about like. Because I know this is going to be like a good amount of days and I'm gonna have to throw in the calendar for the boss to see <laughs> to slip this one through you know so I don't know if you have any advice on that like this one that I did recently all I did was put two days on the calendar you know that was like that was nothing but this is probably going to be pretty noticeable to put on the calendar that oh he shot's taken off four of the days are weekends right mm -hmm. talking about two weeks one of the days is Labor Day so, you know, you have six days. So, you know, that's a total of eight days that I'd have to put on the calendar at once. You know, it's 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 begging the question a bit. And that's why I was also thinking if I did it 
if I were to do it like December twentieth, I it wouldn't. I almost wouldn't even have to put it on the calendar. It would be just so low key. Like, but then I have to pick somewhere like in Texas. I'm or really in not the expert California. for that question. You you may have to work something out like that out with the boss. Yeah. But whatever it is, make sure that you're dressed according to what your comfort levels are when you're out there. Take some mosquito repellent, take an axe and take a, uh, uh, your cell phone for photos, take a knife and a tent, maybe a sleeping bag and correct. You'll be OK. Don't worry too much. You're doing an awful lot of extra planning. <laughs> Yeah, I know. I kind of went down the rabbit hole today, like looking into it. I was like getting excited. I mean, it's uh, this is uncharted territories for me in a number of ways. So, okay, well, I'm sure you're handled it just fine. You'll be all right. Yeah, it'll be a lot of fun. Okay. Well, let's right. cut this call short now. It's been close to two hours or more than two hours. And so uh, we'll let you go now. I'm really glad that we were able to talk about the things that we're talking about. And I wish you excellent good luck on your adventure of going yeah. into seclusion. Yeah. Do you recommend, last question, do you recommend uh, getting like a, an hour a day of Dhamma talking from the videos or what? Yeah, that would be good. Phone. Yeah, that would be okay. If you can actually, uh, rather than uh, relying upon the internet, go ahead and download, uh, oh, let us say one one talk for every day. So if you're planning on uh, 14 days out there, go ahead and get 14 talks. Okay. And that'll give you one a day. And if you do two a day, then you can have the same talk twice. That's okay also. Okay. Okay. Cool. Excellent. All right. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Excellent. I'm excited. <laughs> we'll see you later. All right. Bye bye.